Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, if you want to go ahead and move back to your seats, everyone. Uh, Do me a favor. Let's have everybody on the sides come and sit in the middle so I don't have to turn quite so much. Um, We're ending into the holiday season, so a lot of people are out and about, which is a great thing, going out, exploring the world, finding the goodness. Speaking of goodness, uh, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. Um, Today we are finishing up this current season that we're in. Look at that. There's so many people you guys can't even fit in the middle. Isn't that great? Praise the Lamb. What you can do is you can come sit up here. There's three seats right there, and I can see your beautiful faces. There we go. This is like summer camp. And the podcast will start here. Welcome, everyone, to City Beautiful Church. Uh, my name is Ryan. Um, today, we are finishing up our, our last, se- or our, we're finishing up our series. This is the last message in that series, and this, it's been called Love in Translation. We've been asking this question, what does it look like for us to translate the love of God in real time in the 21st century? What does it look like for us to walk the world with a sensitivity and a tenderness to the Holy Spirit, to speak to the people that he would have us speak to, to act and to love the people that he would have us love? And I've been so encouraged by uh, the variety of stories that we've heard throughout this series of many of you stepping out and taking risks, uh, doing things that are uncomfortable, speaking to people that you don't know, uh, stepping out in faith to to ask those all-important questions. God, what are you saying in this moment? What are you doing? I think for many of us, that's going to be the path forward in our maturity as, as believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is when we kind of make that transition from being people who uh, only receive the truth of who God is to people that actually begin to put it into practice. And the more that we allow the love of God to flow through us, uh, the more we find we're actually capable of holding, the more we're able to uh, administer that into the world in love. Um, So every Friday, I have this prayer group. We meet at the Credo uh, at North Quarter, and we kind of center ourselves using a psalm. And a couple weeks ago, um, we were using Psalm 27, and these two verses really stood out to me and actually want us to read these uh, together kind of as a declaration of worship. So this is Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. If we can get those up there. On the screen. There we go. We're going to read this together. And I want you to, did you see the first line there? It says, I remain confident of this. I want you to actually sound confident, okay? So we're going to read these together as worship. Psalm 27, 13 to 14. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I love this idea that there's this resolution that the psalmist has. I will be see the goodness of the Lord. And he says, I'm going to see it in the land of the living. You see, for the psalmist, it wasn't about God is somewhere over there or God is this way that I escape the chaos of everyday life, but I'm actually remaining confident that I'm going to see the goodness of God in real time, in the world around me, in the people that I live everyday life with. And so the psalmist encourages us then, you've got to wait on the Lord. You've got to take heart. You've got to wait. You've got to allow the Lord to open your eyes to begin to see his goodness everywhere you go. And that's so much of what I want to speak uh, tonight to you in my message, that our role as Christians 
is to name the goodness of God. Our role as Christians is to name the goodness of God. I've become fascinated with, recently with this idea of how we define words and how important that is because a lot of times we can be using the same words and we think that we're in agreement, but actually we're talking about something very different. And so when I think about the word goodness, it seems like it's something we, we kind of all agree on. We all know it on some base level, but we begin to actually discuss what is the, our definition of goodness. We might find that there's some disconnect. And I think for me, the more that I'm learning about the character of God and actually putting that at the center of how I define everything else in creation, I'm understanding that goodness is kind of a measurement of the evidence of God at present in creation. Something is good to the degree in which we see God's character demonstrated in that person, that moment, that aspect of creation. And so I think what, what I hope today that when we leave that we're understanding is we're to go out and we're begin to see the goodness of God all around us and that our role as Christians is to name that goodness because we've encountered that God as revealed in Jesus. So let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here, that you are with us, that you are for us, you are not against us. Lord, we've all come from a myriad of places. We're bringing so much with us, our past experiences of you, uh, questions that we need answered. Many of us, we've been following you for years, learning how to tune our ears to hear your voice. And for some of us, perhaps we're here because we've never quite uh, heard you, but we're desperate and we want to know. We're open and we're curious. And Father, I pray that wherever we are in our journey of seeking after you, that you would meet us here, that you'd bless us with your presence. Yeah, Lord, that we would encounter you and that we would be transformed so that we might go back out into the world and reveal your goodness wherever we go. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, a rock and a redeemer. Amen. So the main passage we're going to be looking at today is from Acts chapter 17. Um, and, the, you know, we've used Acts a lot of times in this series, and I think for a very good reason. We're seeing the early church, the first Christians, kind of stumbling their way through the world, trying to figure out what does it mean to be led by the Spirit into unfamiliar territory. And it's important to remember that the early church was almost exclusively Jews that recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, was the promised one. And not only was he the Messiah that was coming to deliver them, but actually to deliver the whole world, to reconcile the whole world back to God. And so those early stories are, are the early followers of Jesus stepping out and meeting some people in very unique scenarios and situations in their life and having to ask that question, well, how big is the story of God really? Does it really apply to this person in this scenario, in this kind of situation, whatever they're dealing with? Or do we believe that, no, actually, God is really just for our tribe, our way of doing things? So even last week, I was talking about Philip and the eunuch and perhaps how Philip is asking those questions as a good Jew. He's encountering this man that not only is he from North Africa, but he's also a eunuch. He's been castrated in service of the position he holds um, in the kingdom of Ethiopia. And you wonder if he's asking these kind of questions. How, how do I meet this guy in his story where he's at? I don't have any kind of commonality with him. But it was his obedience to the Spirit to be open and to be present and to see what happens that actually led uh, to the conversion of the eunuch on that, uh, on that road away from Jerusalem. And so today we're going to be looking at a story from Paul. Now, many of the early Christians, Peter, Philip, others, they're kind of figuring it out as they go along. But we see in Paul, there was right from the beginning, there was this devotion to people that weren't Jewish. 
that his calling, he knew, was to the Gentiles, to the others, to the people that are out there. And so very quickly, Paul begins his ministry and going out into the known world, into Turkey and Greece and Rome, and preaching the good news wherever he goes. And this story today is an absolutely fascinating example of how Paul would step into a foreign culture and that he would uh, illuminate the story of God in a way that it gave opportunity for people to respond and to step into that story. So I'm going to begin uh, by reading in verse 16, and I want you to be kind of listening to, the, to Luke's observations of the Athenian culture uh, and, and kind of anticipating how is Paul going to be uh, responding to what he sees and encounters there. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Very often Paul's pattern was that he'd go into a city and he'd begin by preaching to the Jews that the Messiah that they'd been anticipating had come. And he'd begin to build kind of a core of the church there and then he'd go beyond the Jewish population of that city and begin to preach to Gentiles. So there's a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, and yes, I practiced that word this week, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. I can't help but think this is Luke getting a little bit snarky maybe. He says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So I think I'd probably get along with them, really. Um, so there's kind of three different ways of being in the world that Paul encounters in the city of Athens. Paganism, and then these two forms of materialist philosophy, Epicureanism and Stoicism. So there's all kinds of paganisms in the first century, just as there's all kinds of paganisms today. But what we find in common in, in the pagan world is that there's a pantheon of gods, and they're kind of like us, except they're just bigger, and maybe they're a little bit angrier. And they tend to live up in mountains or in the clouds, and they're not particularly interested in mankind. And so our role as worshipers is to do the rain dance, to make the corn sacrifice, whatever it is, to kind of get the gods to get off our backs. If we can just appease them and they leave us alone, then we're just going to figure out how to be good people here. But one of the main issues with paganism that the early Christians saw is that so often mankind was turning to worship created things instead of the creator. Maybe it was an animal or a plant or rocks or uh, some sort of you know, foundational element in creation. It was the stars, it was the moon, whatever it was, there was some sort of lesser thing, this object that was taking the place of the God that the Jews and then the Christians knew kind of transcends creation. And it's interesting when we talk about paganism because we think, you know, obviously in the 21st century, we have kind of evolved beyond that. We don't have our pantheons of gods that we worship as in Egypt and Rome and Greece and elsewhere. Like we've kind of moved past that. We're, we're higher thinking creatures. But I actually want to posit to you that perhaps so many of those pagan gods of the first century are still alive and well. It's just a fact that we don't name them as such and that we still worship them. For example, in one story, Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon was this God in the first century, is the God of wealth, or maybe more specifically, we could say the God of greed. 
And if, I wonder if you look around at the world today, do you see that we're still worshiping mammon? We're still worshiping the God of greed. We think that if only we can gather up enough resources, if only we can gobble up enough money and power and wealth, then we'll be safe. Then we will be powerful. Then we'll be in the place of privilege. And we see economic systems all around the world that are based on human greed as a way of storing up and protecting ourselves from one another. I think mammon worship is alive and well today. Or maybe it's Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love, where we've, we've objectified, we've over-sensualized what sex is in our modern society. And it's something that we obsess about single-mindedly. We chase after it with everything we are. We think that is the pinnacle of what it is to be human, to have that, our sexual desires uh, you know, kind of fulfilled. And before long, we begin to objectify other people. We, we poach other people in the name of Aphrodite. I wonder how many, specifically women, but I think overall, how many young people in our society have we sacrificed at the altar of Aphrodite when we participate in the pornography industry? And so we begin to see that maybe we don't name these gods as such, but we're still making human sacrifices to them. Maybe it's the god Ares, or in his Roman counterpart, Mars, the god of war. And as human beings, we think if we, can, if we just have a big enough artillery, if we just come into the fight with a big enough stick, maybe we'll be able to beat up the bad guys and bring peace on earth. And we worship Ares and we sacrifice young men and women at his altar every day in the name of peace, in the name of democracy, in the name of trying to fix the world. And so often we see that these pagan gods and goddesses are actually working in concert to keep us enslaved and entrapped by these very small ideas. And so Paul is greatly distressed when he goes into Athens and he sees all of these little idols to these little gods, these little created things that he knows in the depths of his soul have actually replaced the one true God. But as I said before, so many in the first century, in the, in the Greek and the Roman world, they kind of believed in the gods, but the gods were distant. They're over there. If we can just appease them, then maybe we can just kind of get along with it. And so there was a lot of philosophies that sprung up in Greek culture in the time that were about how do we learn how to be good people. Maybe the gods exist, maybe they don't, but they're certainly not involved. So how do we create a system of understanding what it means to be human that helps us to be good people? And that's why I think Luke mentions the Epicureans and the Stoics. This is a gorgeous painting by Raphael um, of the school of Athens. And I wish I could name to you all of the philosophers in there, but they kind of all look the same. Everybody you know, wears their, their bedclothes and has cool beards. Um, there's all these different philosophies and they're kind of competing and two of the main schools of philosophy in the first century in Athens were the Epicureans and the Stoics. And so the Epicureans, their, their question is, what does it mean to be a full and complete human being? And, and for them, it was life is about reasonable pleasure and tranquility. Life is about avoiding as much anxiety and pain and suffering as you can. You can kind of boil down the Epicurean philosophy to, ultimately, if you're not hurting other people, life is just about you making yourself happy. Do what makes you feel good that doesn't hurt other people. That's the highest good that you can possibly hope to achieve. And the Stoic school of philosophy alongside of them, they didn't believe that it was about happiness. They believed it was about being good and moral. They insisted, yes, there is pain and suffering in life, but rather than trying to escape it, 
We should allow ourselves to pass through pain and suffering. And it's really about being moral, upstanding people. It's about being virtuous, ethical people. And so if the, if the Epicureans are saying, make yourself happy, the Stoics are essentially saying, do the right thing. Build your schema of logic and reason and use that to, to overcome all of your emotions because obviously in this system, your emotions are a liability and they're icky and they're just gonna mess everything up. So just get rid of your emotions, choose logic and reason, be a virtuous person, and that's what life is all about. And I think it's fascinating, whether it's paganism or these materialistic philosophies, that they're kind of these alternatives to what we find in the gospel that, that begin because people are asking the wrong questions. It's like we're trying to create a, a strategy of how we're going to get to the moon, but we never realize that the moon is merely just reflecting the light of the sun. It's like our trajectory is wrong. Our starting point is in the wrong place. And I hope you can see as I describe paganism and Epicureanism and Stoicism that those religions, those philosophies are actually alive and well today, many of them even within the church. Because if we think life is just about being a good person, we miss the invitation to intimacy with our good God. If we set our sights too low, if we think at the end of the day, maybe God exists and maybe he doesn't, but if he does, he's not particularly interested in me. If I can just do the rain dance to get him off my back, then my role is just to be a good person, and that's the best that I can hope for in life. We've missed it. It breaks my heart when I encounter people that talk about these supposed deals that they've made with God to say, God, if you would just do this one thing for me, I promise I'll never bother you again and I'll be a good person and I'll get my taxes in on time and I, you know, make, I'll pet every puppy that I come across or whatever it takes. And it just the heart of the Father is so missing in that because that's not the God as revealed in Jesus. That's the God revealed in Zeus. That's the God revealed in Aphrodite. That's the God revealed in Ares. If I just, I promise you, just do this one thing for me. I'll never bother you again. And I think ironically, the modern church is just as guilty of this as anybody. That we actually have forgotten about spirituality and we've made what we do here about moralism, about learning how to be a good person. Because guess what? Encountering God, challenging people to encounter the real and living spirit of Jesus in the moment, it just seems like it's too high a call. It's too risky. It's so much easier for us to build a schema of morals and ethics to guide us through life. And it's so easy for us just to tell other people how they should behave what's right and what's wrong, what's in and what's out, without ever thinking that perhaps what they do not need is a sense of morality. They actually need an encounter with God as revealed in Jesus. And in the church, we've forgotten this. We've forgotten the spiritual reality of life. We've made it about morals. We've made it about ethics. We've made it about right and wrong. And our response to the world is try, to try to legislate what we believe is true because we would rather control people than trust that when we lead people into an encounter with God, he's actually going to show up. That he's actually going to speak. That he's actually going to do something. And so Paul is greatly distressed seeing these pagan idols 
encountering these different kinds of materialist philosophy. And he begins to step in and to present them with the good news. And this is one of those places that maybe we would suppose Paul would kind of come in with his signs and he'd be quoting from Revelation, which hasn't probably been written yet. And he's like, you're going to hell because you don't believe and repent or whatever, you know. But that's not what Paul does. How does Paul address these pagans in a way that actually opens them up to the story of Jesus? We're continuing on in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. I love that this is Paul's response to what he sees around him. He, that he doesn't indict people. He doesn't condemn them. But he actually blesses their desire to connect with something that's beyond themselves. You see, a lot of times we've been trained that when we read the word religious, that's a bad thing. Religion equal bad and relationship equal good. And many of you know this is a hill that I'm willing to die upon. I love religion. I think religion is great because religion is the space in which we explore and express our faith. Religion's the place that we come to worship and we have actual songs that we can sing, where we read scripture and it's actually there for us, where we pray together. All of this is religion. Now what we do with it is different. Bad religion is when we seek to control people by morality and good religion is when we use that space that we've crafted through symbol and word to lead people in an encounter with God. And so Paul blesses kind of these three things. He says, first of all, you're very religious. You've created the space. You've created space in your lives to worship something that's bigger than yourself. That's amazing. That's awesome. You haven't given up. He says, you're open. You're curious. And then most profoundly of all, he says, you've even got this idol to the unknown God, just in case you missed anybody. Just in case there was a name that you hadn't received yet, you've got that covered. And that's great. And I'm actually here to tell you who that is. So he even kind of affirms there's this level of humility in the Athenians to say, we may not have it all covered, but just, just so that we can make sure that we do, we've got this uh, idol to the unknown God. And I think there's something powerful there for us to learn as we're trying to love the world well. We must always bless the desire of other people to connect with something bigger than themselves. We should always bless that when we see it in other people. Maybe the conclusions they're coming to are short-sighted. Maybe we don't agree with how they've defined who God is or what religion looks like or philosophy or whatever it might be. But that deep desire within them, we have to believe that is something that is actually God-given. That there's something that God has woven into our DNA that makes us curious that blesses us as explorers, as seekers. And if we're to shut people down at that level, then they will never be open to encountering the God that's revealed in Jesus. Many of you know that my uh, passion in life is to, to minister to people that have grown up in the church their whole lives, but come to this point where they just kind of feel like there's gotta be something more. And you know, for some of you, if you remember you know, being in youth group in the 90s, we were very well prepared for the new atheism. We were given all these strategy of how we were going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the atheists because they're out there everywhere and they're really clever and they read lots of books. And so you've got all these retorts for all of their challenges. And it's like, 
boom, Richard Dawkins, uppercut, Christopher Hitchens. You know, like, you know all of these guys and their names and their arguments against God, and you were just so ready to go toe-to-toe with them. Because in the 90s, we just believed nobody believes in the spiritual realm except for us. And there's just Christians and atheists. That's how you divide the world. And then the world actually got more complex. And then we had this thing called the internet, which meant that everybody could kind of talk to everybody else. And all of a sudden, those very simple categories that we were given in youth group for how to, to argue and defend against, you know, to defend the faith began to fall apart. And I don't know about you, but I had many friends that actually left the church because the church forgot about spirituality. They left the church because they forgot that it was about encountering God, about being in his presence, abiding in him. And they began to look elsewhere in other religions and in other philosophies that met that felt need deep within themselves. I remember talking to a a friend several years ago uh, who had been part of our community in Nashville, and he had kind of been traveling all over, and we're catching up, and he said, yeah, what's going on? I said, well, I'm getting ready to go uh, down to Peru to this mission trip. He said, yeah, that's so awesome, man. I'm going to Peru, too. I'm meeting up with this witch doctor, and he's going to give me some ayahuasca, and he's going to open me up to the realities of the universe. And I'm like, cool. So we're like kind of kind of doing the same thing in a way. And it was, I didn't have a category for that. I didn't have a category for ayahuasca, first of all. Um, but I didn't know this was a thing because I was a you know, kid, grew up in the church in the 90s. We were pretty sheltered. And I'm talking to another buddy and he, he says, you know, how so-and-so, he's great, he's dating this girl, it's really great, he's also getting into black magic. And I was like, what? Black magic? You mean like that's a thing beyond Dungeons and Dragons that's like real people practice? I was just so ill-equipped for the reality of the world. But realizing that when we have just made it about legislating morality, the smart ones among us go looking for answers. Because we know on some deep existential level there's got to be something more than what we're being presented with. I think our challenge today is the same that it was for Peter and Paul and those first Christians. How do we minister the truth of the story of Jesus in a post-Christian and dare I say pagan society? One of my favorite pastors, Brian Zahn, he says, the sooner that we realize as Christians that we do not live in Jerusalem, we live in Babylon, the sooner we're gonna be able to recall our actual mission to preach the good news. But we believe that we're in this Christian nation, that everybody's good little Christians and everybody's doing the thing the right way. And we've missed it. And I love several weeks ago, I used this line from Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says, from now on, we regard no one from an earthly point of view. And what he's talking about, you remember that Paul was a very religious man before his conversion. He knew all the rules. He knew everything about God. He was in this position of power and privilege, and he met Jesus in a way that it destroyed him, and he had to be rebuilt. And what he's telling us here is, you know, I used to regard people from an earthly point of view. I thought, my people, my tribe, we have a monopoly on what God is really like. And if anybody else wants to encounter God, they have to come to us. And more specifically, they have to come to the house that we built for God. He's in our temple, and we're going to be the ones that are going to sell tickets for admission so that they can come and worship him. You see, Paul encountered Jesus on that road to Damascus, and it shattered all of his preconceived notions about what God was really like. And from that point on, he said, we don't regard anybody from that silly, earthly point of view anymore. It's just about legislating morality. It's just about being a good person. We don't believe that anymore. We begin to actually see people the way that God sees them so that we can love them the way that God loves them. 
But I think Paul had to be trained by God to identify his fingerprints in cultures that were beyond the traditional boundaries of right religion. That maybe God was actually speaking to people outside of the borders and the boundaries of Judaism. That maybe today God is actually speaking to people around the world outside of Christianity. Think about that for a second. Maybe we're not the ones that have God in a box. Maybe we're not the ones that have to build a house for God and that we charge people admission to come and to meet him and to ogle at him. But maybe God is actually already out in the world speaking the truth of his character to people in every nation, tribe, and tongue, and it rather changes our understanding of what our responsibility is to the world. As Christians, we must be trained to see the fingerprint of God wherever we go. And this is why I keep saying in this series, it's so important for us to know him. It's so important that we know his voice. As Jesus says, my sheep will know my voice. And that comes through time, that comes through training, that comes through study, it comes through prayer, it comes through us abiding in him so that we know what he sounds like, that we know what he looks like that we know what he tastes like and he smells like so that whenever we go in the world, we can go, ah, yes, there he is. That's him. That's his heart. That's his desire. And so Paul, from this vantage point, begins to tell the Athenians the story of God that's revealed in Jesus in a way that it names the unnamed. Continuing on in verse 24. This is Paul speaking to the Athenians. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and light (laughs) and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Isn't that a great phrase? Like, though he's not far from any one of us. It reminds me of like when Jesus is preaching, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, Change the way that you think and the way you see the world because the reality of God is so close to you that you can practically reach out and touch it. This isn't Zeus on a mountain. This isn't Ra descending from the heavens. This is a God who's so close that you can practically touch him. And I love this next line. He he says, for in him we live and move and have our being." As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so Paul kind of affirms God has already present in this Athenian culture. He's present in these religions. He's present in these philosophies. The the Greek poets themselves are testifying to these very deep and foundational truths that we're actually all God's children and that in him we live and we move and we have our being. I think it's a beautiful uh, 
constructive contrast to what Peter does at Pentecost. If you remember several weeks ago, we looked at the first Christian sermon. Peter stands up at this Jewish festival, and he tells the Jewish people their own story. He says, you know all the main players, you know all the prophecies, you know all the scriptures, and I'm here to tell you that all of that was fulfilled in Jesus. He was the Messiah that we were waiting for. And 3,000 people came to recognize that day that Jesus was, in fact, the one they had been waiting for this whole time. But see, Paul could never have preached that message in Athens because they didn't know the main characters. They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have the prophecies. And so Paul had to be sensitive to his audience and begin to find things within their culture that God was already speaking and doing so he could name it and he could bless it and actually call them into account with who God really is. And so he continues on in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul chooses to use the context of their culture, not his, to preach the story of Jesus. I think this is the core of love in translation, a great commitment to the story of God that's met with a great sensitivity and love to those who have not yet encountered him. And I think that's so important for us to understand because we as believers cannot judge other people out of the story that we've chosen into. We can't assume that everybody else is on board and they know what God's like and they know what Jesus is like and they know what right and wrong is. And when we do that, when we judge other people outside of, of the Christianity according to our standards, we are pushing them farther away from God. We're not drawing them into an encounter with him. Because what we're saying is all of your experiences are invalid. You're kidding yourself if you think you know anything about God. You're kidding yourself if you think you know anything about what it means to be a human being. And when we do that, we shut them down. And they're not open to the reality of the good God that we worship. God moves and speaks outside of the Christian tradition with the aim of drawing all people into his embrace. Wherever we go, God is already there. And he's already speaking. In Romans 1, even, Paul puts it so beautifully. He says, the invisible qualities of God are all evident throughout creation that we might discover them as we go about the world, learning about it and exploring it and asking questions and sharing with one another. I mentioned this uh, artist several months ago who's one of my favorites, Makoto Fujimura. Uh, he's a Japanese artist, and he grew up uh, in, a, in a house that were not, they were not believers, they were not, they were not Christian, and he, had, um, he was in Japan, and he was studying ancient Japanese painting techniques to incorporate them into his abstract expressionism. And he came across this poet, a poem by William Blake, who's a, an English poet, and it was called Jerusalem. And in this poem, William uh, Blake is, is writing a, a beautiful analysis of the cross. He's speaking of uh, Jesus and specifically the heart of God revealed through Jesus. And Fujimura read this poem that he just stumbled across and he said, ah, if this is true, if this is real, this is what I want to believe in. And that day he kind of committed himself to the man in the poem, in this poem, Jerusalem. 
And it was a year before Fujimura realized that he had actually become a Christian. And not only that, but there were other people in the world that believed in this same Jesus. You see, God is already going ahead of us. God is already speaking about his character and his will to people all around the world in every manner of way. And it changes our understanding of our responsibility as Christians. And it's not to go out and to legislate moralism, but it's our job to go out and to name what God is already doing in the world. But learning to see the goodness of God in the world around us enables us to help other people see it. That as Christians, everything that we do is in the name of Jesus. So when Jesus sends out the apostles just before his ascension, he says, go out into all the world, Judea and, and Samaria and the ends of the earth, and preach the good news of the kingdom and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as followers of Jesus, everything we do is in his name. And I love when I see, you know, uh, Christians, believers, partnering with any manner of people to actually make the world a better place. That when we're bringing water to those that need it or we're looking for healthier alternatives to food or whatever it might be that we're doing, that we're partnering with people to actually create a better world. That's good and important work. But I believe as Christians, when we participate in it, our reason for that is different. We're not content just to make the world a better place. It's not just about being happier. It's not just about having integrity. It's not even just about doing what is right. What we do is because we are worshiping the name of Jesus. We do what we do in the world because we bring glory to his name when we do it. I think this is so important. We've, we've, we've mentioned this several times. I know even, I think just even earlier in this series, Cole was, was speaking about this, that it's not about us against the world. It's us for the world. When we think that our battle is against flesh and blood, against other human beings, we've missed the point entirely. It's us for other people. But it's us for other people specifically in a way that we're setting them free from new paganism, we're setting people free from the worship of Mammon and Aphrodite and Ares and all of these ancient gods that are still alive and well today. It's about us setting people free from hollow philosophies that say, just do what feels good. Just make yourself happy. Just figure out whatever you think is the right thing. Just do that. It's our job as Christians to deliver people from that kind of hollow religion and that hollow philosophy. One of my favorite stories of evangelism is that of St. Patrick. Patrick was, uh, when he was a very young man living in Wales, he was actually kidnapped um, by the Celts and taken to Ireland, and he was enslaved for several years. And while he was there, he would recite the Psalms to himself while he's doing whatever work they had for him to do. And when uh, he was a little bit older, he was able to escape, and he went back to Wales and England, and he became a priest. And before long, God actually called him to go back to the very people that had enslaved him. And so Patrick goes there, and, and just like Paul, he looks around at Celtic culture and Celtic religion, and he doesn't curse at them and he doesn't belittle them, but he actually begins to bless things that he sees within their culture. Many of you know he's famous for using the shamrock as this image of explaining a Trinitarian God, a, a God that is a community of love to the Celts. 
But one of the things he saw is that they, they had this, uh, this festival. They considered the sun was for the Celts was the highest form of God. And at the winter solstice on December 24th, they had this festival where they celebrated the, the, you know, the darkest of night, the next day, the new sun coming up. It's a, it's a new year. It's this practice of rebirth. And they used to, to, to bring these trees together and they'd decorate the trees in all these fancy ways. They'd put candles in the trees and they'd give presents to one another and especially to the women as the symbol of like, they're the ones that bring forth this new birth. And Patrick and the early uh, evangelists to Ireland said, I want to bless that that you see that, it, yes, there's something about new life. There's something about resurrection. There's something more than this. But I'm here to tell you that it's not just about worshiping the sun. It's actually about worshiping the son of God. And by the way, that's where we get Christmas on December 25th. That was not Jesus's actual birthday. I'm very sorry to tell you that. But it's a beautiful example of what I'm talking about that, you know, so often when we think about missions and evangelism, it's like, we're going to come in and we're going to erase your culture because it's invalid and we're going to establish a Christian culture. And what we really mean is we're going to come in and we're going to erase your culture and we're going to establish a European culture. And we begin to erase the fingerprints of God that are through every nation and tribe and tongue because we make it more about the way that we live our lives then we make it about actually encountering God and seeing how big his story really is. Because it's, if it's not about relationship, if it's not about intimacy with the God that's revealed in Jesus, then what is it really about? Life is not about us just being good people. Life is not about us just trying to make ourselves happy in the chaos of this world. It's not about us biding our time and twiddling our thumbs until maybe we get to go to this place called heaven when we die and sit on a cloud for eternity and play the harp. It's about intimacy with God here, now, in this moment. That he's not a rumor. He doesn't live up on top of a mountain. He's very interested in you. He's so close that you can touch him. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And to close out this series, we're going to participate in an ancient symbol that speaks so beautifully to why we're here. In some traditions, it's called the Eucharist, which is a Greek word that means thanks. Sometimes it's called communion. Sometimes it's called the Lord's table. But whatever your tradition that you've called it, we come to the table because it's an act of faith. When we come to the table of God, when we take that cracker and that juice that symbolize the body and blood of Jesus, and we take that into ourselves, what we're saying is an act of faith, that we know the goodness of God is centered on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Christianity is not a philosophy. The Eucharist is not a pagan idol. Our faith is not a program that helps you to become a better you. And it's certainly not here to help you to make, to make you happier. Christianity is a confession that with everything we are and everything we say, we're saying Jesus is Lord. And we're inviting others to that. And so I want to invite those who are going to share the Eucharist with you to come forward. And I want you to close your eyes, and if you're comfortable with it, put your hands out in front of you in a posture of reception. And I'm going to read uh, in just a moment a poem that Paul wrote about Jesus. 
And I only want you to come to the table today if you want to make that confession that Jesus is Lord. And maybe you don't know exactly what that means. I don't know what that means half the time. But that's the journey that we're on, is to discover that when we confess Jesus is Lord, we're going to see how deep and wide and high is his kingdom. How far can it go? That's the life of faith. That's the life of exploration. So just receive these words. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him, all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to, to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to you by every creature under heaven. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.